Section five of the journals of Robert Falcon Scott by Robert Falcon Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. Section five. Chapter two. In the pack. Part three. Monday, December the twenty sixth. Observations sixty nine degrees nine minutes south, hundred and seventy eight degrees thirteen minutes west. Made good forty eight hours. South thirty five east. Ten minutes. The position tonight is very cheerless. All hope that this easterly wind will open the pack seems to have vanished. We are surrounded with compacted flows of immense area. Openings appear between these flows, and we slide, crab-like, from one to another, with long delays between. It is difficult to keep hope alive. There are streaks of water-sky over open leads to the north, but everywhere to the south we have the uniform white sky. The day has been overcast, and the wind force three to five from the east-north-east. Snow has fallen from time to time. There could scarcely be a more dreary prospect for the eye to rest upon. As I lay in my bunk last night I seemed to note a measured crush on the brash ice, and to-day first it was reported that the flows had become smaller and then we seem to note a sort of measured send alongside the ship. There may be a long low swell, but it is not helping us, apparently. Tonight the flows around are indisputably as large as ever, and I see little sign of their breaking or becoming less tightly locked. It is a very, very trying time. We have managed to make two or three miles in a south-west direction, under sail, by alternately throwing her aback, then filling sail, and pressing through the narrow leads. Probably this will scarcely make up for our drift. It's all very disheartening. The bright side is that everyone is prepared to exert himself to the utmost, however poor the result of our labours may show. Rennick got a sounding again today, 1,843 fathoms. One is much struck by our inability to find a cause for the periodic opening and closing of the flows. One wonders whether there is a reason to be found in tidal movement. In general, however, it seems to show that our conditions are governed by remote causes. Somewhere, well north or south of us, the wind may be blowing in some other direction, tending to press up or release pressure. Then again, such sheets of open water as those through which we have passed to the north afford space into which bodies of pack can be pushed. The exasperating uncertainty of one's mind in such captivity is due to ignorance of its cause, and inability to predict the effect of changes of wind. One can only vaguely comprehend that things are happening far beyond our horizon, which directly affect our situation. Tuesday, December the 27th. Dead reckoning 69 degrees, 12 minutes south, 178 degrees, 18 minutes west. We made nearly two miles in the first watch half push, half drift. Then the ship was again held up. In the middle the ice was close around, even pressing on us, and we didn't move a yard. The wind steadily increased, and has been blowing a moderate gale, shifting in direction to east-south-east. We are reduced to lower topsails. In the morning watch we began to move again, the ice opening out with the usual astonishing absence of reason. We have made a mile or two in a westerly direction in the same manner as yesterday. The flows seem a little smaller, but our outlook is very limited. There is a thick haze, and the only fact that can be known 
is that there are pools of water at intervals for a mile or two in the direction in which we go. We commence to move between two flows, make two hundred or three hundred yards, and are then brought up bows on to a large lamp. This may mean a wait of anything from ten minutes to half an hour, whilst the ship swings round, falls away, and drifts to leeward. When clear, she forges ahead again, and the operation is repeated. Occasionally, when she can get a little way on, she cracks the obstacle, and slowly passes through it. There is a distinct swell, very long, very low. I counted the period as about nine seconds. Everyone says the ice is breaking up. I have not seen any distinct evidence myself, but Wilson saw a large floe which had recently cracked into four pieces in such a position that the ship could not have caused it. The breaking up of the big floes is certainly a hopeful sign. I have written quite a lot about the pack ice, when under ordinary conditions I should have passed it with few words. But you will scarcely be surprised when I tell you what an obstacle we have found it on this occasion. I was thinking during the gale last night that our position might be a great deal worse than it is. We were lying amongst the floes perfectly peacefully, whilst the wind howled through the rigging, and felt quite free from anxiety as to the ship, the sails, the bergs, or ice pressures. One calmly went below and slept in the greatest comfort. One thought of the ponies, but after all, horses have been carried for all time in small ships, and often enough for very long voyages. The eastern party will certainly benefit by any delay we may make. For them, the later they get to King Edward's land, the better. The depot journey of the western party will be curtailed, but even so, if we can get landed in January, there should be time for a good deal of work. One must confess that things might be a great deal worse, and there would be little to disturb one if one's release was certain, say in a week's time. I'm afraid the ice-house is not going on so well as it might. There is some mould on the mutton, and the beef is tainted. There is a distinct smell. The house has been opened by order, when the temperature has fallen below twenty-eight degrees. I thought the effect would be to harden up the meat, but apparently we need air circulation. When the temperature goes down to-night, we shall probably take the beef out of the house and put a wind-sail in to clear the atmosphere. If this does not improve matters, we must hang more carcasses in the rigging. Later, 6 p.m. The wind has backed from south-east to east-south-east, and the swell is going down. This seems to argue open water in the first, but not in the second direction, and that the course we pursue is a good one on the whole. The sky is clearing, but the wind still gusty, force four to seven. The ice has frozen a little, and we have made no progress since noon. 9 p.m. One of the ponies went down to-night. He has been down before. It may mean nothing. On the other hand, it is not a circumstance of good omen. Otherwise, there is nothing further to record, and I close this volume of my journal under circumstances which cannot be considered cheerful. A Fresh Manuscript, Book, 1910-11 On the Flyleaf And in regions far such heroes bring ye forth, as those from whom we came, and plant our name under that star not known unto our north. To the Virginian voyage, Drayton. But be the workmen what they may be, let us speak of the work, that is, the true greatness of kingdom and estates, and the means thereof. Bacon. Still in the ice. 
Wednesday, December the 28th, 1910. Observations. Noon, 69 degrees, 17 minutes south, 179 degrees, 42 minutes west. Made good since 26th, south, 74 west, 31 minutes. Cape Crozier south, 22 west, 530 minutes. The gale has abated. The sky began to clear in the middle watch. Now we have bright, cheerful, warm sunshine. Temperature, 28 degrees. The wind lulled in the middle watch and has fallen to force two to three. We made one and a half miles in the middle and have added nearly a mile since. This movement has brought us among the flows of decidedly smaller area and the pack has loosened considerably. A visit to the crow's nest shows great improvement in the conditions. There is ice on all sides, but a large percentage of the flows is quite thin, and even the heavier ice appears breakable. It is only possible to be certain of conditions for three miles or so, the limit of observation from the crow's nest. But as far as this limit there is no doubt the ship could work through with ease. Beyond there are vague signs of open water in the southern sky. We have pushed and drifted south and west during the gale, and are now near the 180th meridian again. It seems impossible that we can be far from the southern limit of the pack. On the strength of these observations, we have decided to raise steam. I trust this effort will carry us through. The pony which fell last night has now been brought out into the open. The poor beast is in a miserable condition, very thin, very weak on the hind legs, and suffering from a most irritating skin affection, which is causing its hair to fall out in great quantities. I think a day or so in the open will help matters. One or two of the other ponies under the forecastle are also in poor condition, but none so bad as this one. Oates is unremitting in his attention and care of these animals, but I don't think he quite realises that whilst in the pack the ship must remain steady and that therefore a certain limited scope for movement and exercise is afforded by the open deck on which the sick animal now stands. If we can get through the ice in the coming effort, we may get all the ponies through safely, but there would be no great cause for surprise if we lost two or three more. These animals are now the great consideration, balanced as they are against the coal expenditure. This morning a number of penguins were diving for food, around and under the ship, it is the first time they have come so close to the ship in the pack, and there can be little doubt that the absence of motion of the propeller has made them bold. The Adelaide penguin on land or ice is almost wholly ludicrous. Whether sleeping, quarrelling or playing, whether curious, frightened or angry, its interest is continuously humorous. But the Adelaide penguin in the water is another thing. As it darts to and fro a fathom or two below the surface, as it leaps, porpoise-like, into the air, or swims skimmingly over the rippling surface of a pool, it excites nothing but admiration. Its speed probably appears greater than it is, but the ability to twist and turn, and the general control of movement, is both beautiful and wonderful. As one looks across the barren stretches of the pack, it is sometimes difficult to realise what teeming life exists immediately beneath its surface. A tonette is filled with diatoms in a very short space of time, showing that the floating plant life is many times richer than that of temperate or tropic seas. These diatoms mostly consist of three or four well-known species. Feeding on these diatoms are countless thousands of small shrimps, euphorsia. They can be seen swimming at the edge of every flow and washing about on the overturned pieces. 
In turn they afford food for creatures great and small, the crab-eater, or white seal, the penguins, the antarctic and snowy petrel, and an unknown number of fish. These fish must be plentiful, as shown by our capture of one on an overturned floe, and the report of several seen two days ago by some men leaning over the counter of the ship. These all exclaimed together, and on inquiry all agreed that they had seen half a dozen or more, a foot or so in length, swimming away under a floe. Seals and penguins capture these fish, as also doubtless the skewers and the petrels. Coming to the larger mammals, one occasionally sees the long, lithe sea-leopard, formidably armed with ferocious teeth, and doubtless containing a penguin or two, and perhaps a young crab-eating seal. The killer whale, Orca gladiator, unappeasably voracious, devouring or attempting to devour every smaller animal, is less common in the pack, but numerous on the coasts. Finally, we have the great browsing whales of various species, from the vast blue whale Balanoptera sibaldi, the largest mammal of all time, to the smaller and less common bottlenose, and such species as have not yet been named. Great numbers of these huge animals are seen, and one realises what a demand they must make on their food supply, and therefore how immense a supply of small sea-beasts these seas must contain. Beneath the placid ice-flows and under the calm water-pools, the old universal warfare is raging incessantly in the struggle for existence. Both morning and afternoon we have had brilliant sunshine, and this afternoon all the afterguard lay about on the deck sunning themselves. A happy, carefree group. 10 p.m. We made our start at 8, and so far things look well. We have found the ice comparatively thin, the floes 2 to 3 feet in thickness, except where hummocked. Amongst them are large sheets from six inches to one foot in thickness, as well as fairly numerous water-pools. The ship has pushed on well, covering at least three miles an hour, though occasionally almost stopped by a group of hummocked floes. The sky is overcast. Stratus clouds come over from the north-northeast, with wind in the same direction, soon after we started. This may be an advantage as the sails give great assistance, and the officer of the watch has an easier time when the sun is not shining directly in his eyes. As I write, the pack looks a little closer. I hope to heavens it is not generally closing up again. No sign of open water to the south. Alas! 12 p.m. Saw two sea leopards playing in the wake. Thursday, December the 29th. No sights. At last the change for which I have been so eagerly looking has arrived and we are steaming amongst flows of small area, evidently broken by swell, and with edges abraded by contact. The transition was almost sudden. We made very good progress during the night with one or two checks, and one or two slices of luck in the way of open water. In one pool we ran clear for an hour, capturing six good miles. This morning we were running through large continuous sheets of ice, from six inches to one foot in thickness, with occasional water-holes and groups of heavier flows. This forenoon it is the same tale, except that the sheets of thin ice have broken into comparatively regular figures, none more than thirty yards across. It is the hopefulest sign of the approach to the open sea that I have seen. The wind remains in the north helping us. The sky is overcast, and slight sleety drizzle is falling. The sun has made one or two attempts to break through, but without success. Last night we had a good example of the phenomenon called 
glazed frost, the ship everywhere, on every fibre of rope, as well as on her more solid parts, was covered with a thin sheet of ice caused by a fall of light, supercooled rain. The effect was pretty and interesting. Our passage through the pack has been comparatively uninteresting from the zoologist's point of view, as we have seen so little of the rarer species of animals or of birds in exceptional plumage. We passed dozens of crab-eaters, but have seen no Ross seals, nor have we been able to kill a sea leopard. Today we see very few penguins. I am afraid there can be no observations to give us our position. Release after twenty days in the pack. Friday, December the 30th. Observations. 72 degrees 17 minutes south, 177 degrees 9 minutes east, made good in 48 hours south, 19 west, 190 minutes. Cape Crozier south, 21 west, 334 minutes. We are out of the pack at length and at last. One breathes again, and hopes that it will be possible to carry out the main part of our programme. But the coal will need tender nursing. Yesterday afternoon it became darkly overcast with falling snow. The barometer fell on a very steep gradient, and the wind increased to force six from the east-northeast. In the evening the snow fell heavily, and the glass still galloped down. In any other part of the world one would have felt certain of a coming gale, but here, by experience, we know that the barometer gives little indication of wind. Throughout the afternoon and evening the water-holes became more frequent, and we came along at a fine speed. At the end of the first watch we were passing through occasional streams of ice. The wind had shifted to north, and the barometer had ceased to fall. In the middle watch the snow held up, and soon after, 1 a.m., Bowers steered through the last ice stream. At six this morning we were well in the open sea, the sky thick and overcast with occasional patches of fog. We passed one small berg on the starboard hand, with a group of Antarctic petrels on one side, and a group of snow petrels on the other. It is evident that these birds rely on sea and swell to cast their food up on ice ledges. Only a few find sustenance in the pack where, though food is plentiful, it is not easily come by. A flight of Antarctic petrel accompanied the ship for some distance, wheeling to and fro about her, rather than following in the wake as do the more northerly seabirds. It is good to escape from the captivity of the pack, and to feel that a few days will see us at Cape Crozier. But it is sad to remember the terrible inroad which the fight of the last fortnight has made on our coal supply. 2 p.m. The wind failed in the forenoon, sails were clued up, and at eleven we stopped to sound. The sounding showed 1,111 fathoms. We appeared to be on the edge of the continental shelf. Nelson got some samples and temperatures. The sun is bursting through the misty sky and warming the air. The snowstorm has covered the ropes with an icy sheet. This is now peeling off and falling with a clatter to the deck, from which the moist slush is rapidly evaporating. In a few hours the ship will be dry, much to our satisfaction. It is very wretched when, as last night, there is slippery wet snow underfoot and on every object one touches. Our run has exceeded our reckoning by much. I feel confident that our speed during the last two days has been greatly underestimated, and so it has proved. We ought to be off Cape Crozier on New Year's Day. 8 p.m. Our calm soon came to an end. The breeze at 3 p.m., coming strong from the south-south-west, dead in our teeth, a regular southern blizzard. 
we are creeping along a bare two knots. I begin to wonder if fortune will ever turn her wheel. On every possible occasion she seems to have decided against us. Of course the ponies are feeling the motion as we pitch in a short, sharp sea. It is damnable for them, and disgusting for us. Summary of the pack. We may be said to have entered the pack at 4 p.m. on the 9th, in latitude 65 and a half south. We left it at 1 a.m. on the 30th, in latitude 71 and a half south. We have taken twenty days and some odd hours to get through, and covered in a direct line over 370 miles, an average of 18 miles a day. We entered the pack with 342 tons of coal, and left with 281 tons. We have therefore expended 61 tons in forcing our way through, an average of six miles to the ton. These are not pleasant figures to contemplate, but considering the exceptional conditions experienced, I suppose one must conclude that things might have been worse. We were steaming for nine out of twenty days. We had two long stops, one of five days and one of four and a half days. On three other occasions we stopped for short intervals without drawing fires. I have asked Wright to plot the pack with certain symbols on the chart made by Pennell. It promises to give a very graphic representation of our experiences. We hold the record for reaching the northern edge of the pack, whereas three or four times the open Ross Sea has been gained at an earlier date. I can imagine few things more trying to the patients than the long, wasted days of waiting. Exasperating as it is to see the tons of coal melting away with the smallest mileage to our credit, one has at least the satisfaction of active fighting and the hope of better fortune. To wait idly is the worst of conditions. You can imagine how often and how restlessly we climbed to the crow's nest and studied the outlook. And strangely enough, there was generally some change to note. A water lead would mysteriously open up a few miles away, or the place where it had been would as mysteriously close. Huge icebergs crept silently towards or past us and continually we were observing these formidable objects with a rangefinder and compass to determine the relative movement, sometimes with misgiving as to our ability to clear them. And esteem the change of conditions was even more marked. Sometimes we would enter a lead of open water and proceed for a mile or two without hindrance. Sometimes we would come to big sheets of thin ice, which broke easily as our iron-shod prow struck them, and sometimes even a thin sheet would resist all our attempts to break it. Sometimes we would push big flows with comparative ease, and sometimes a small flow would bar our passage with such obstinacy that one would almost believe it possessed of an evil spirit. Sometimes we passed through acres of sludgy, sodden ice which hissed as it swept along the side, and sometimes the hissing ceased seemingly without rhyme or reason, and we found our screw churning the sea without any effect. Thus the steaming days passed away in an ever-changing environment, and are remembered as an unceasing struggle. The ship behaved splendidly. No other ship, not even the Discovery, would have come through so well. Certainly the Nimrod would never have reached the South Water, had she been caught in such pack. As a result, I have grown strangely attached to the Terranova. As she bumped the flows with mighty shocks, crushing and grinding away through some, twisting and turning to avoid others, she seemed like a living thing, fighting a great fight. If only she had more economical engines, she would be suitable in all respects. Once or twice we got among flows which stood seven or eight feet above water, with hummocks and pinnacles as high as twenty-five feet. The ship, 
could have stood no chance had such flows pressed against her, and at first we were a little alarmed in such situations, but familiarity breeds contempt. There never was any pressure in the heavy ice, and I am inclined to think there never would be. The weather changed frequently during our journey through the pack. The wind blew strong from the west and from the east. The sky was often darkly overcast. We had snowstorms, flaky snow, and even light rain. In all such circumstances we were better placed in the pack than outside of it. The foulest weather could do us little harm. During quite a large percentage of days, however, we had bright sunshine, which, even with a temperature well below freezing, made everything look bright and cheerful. The sun also brought us wonderful cloud effects, marvellously delicate tints of sky, cloud and ice, such effects as one might travel far to see. In spite of our impatience, we would not willingly have missed many of the beautiful scenes which our sojourn in the pack afforded us. Ponting and Wilson had been busy catching these effects. But no art can reproduce such colours as the deep blue of the icebergs. Scientifically, we have been able to do something. We have managed to get a line of soundings on our route, showing the raising of the bottom from the ocean depths to the shallow water on the continental shelf, and the nature of the bottom. With these soundings we have obtained many interesting observations of the temperature of different layers of water in the sea. Then we have added a great deal to the knowledge of life in the pack, from observation of the whales, seals, penguins, birds and fishes, as well as of the pelagic beasts which are caught in tonets. Life in one form or another is very plentiful in the pack, and the struggle for existence here as elsewhere is a fascinating subject for study. We have made a systematic study of the ice also, both the bergs and sea ice, and have got a good deal of useful information concerning it. Also Pennell has done a little magnetic work. But of course this slight list of activity in the cause of science is a very poor showing for the time of our numerous experts. Many have had to be idle in regard to their own specialities, though none are idle otherwise. All the scientific people keep night watch when they have no special work to do and I have never seen a party of men so anxious to be doing work, or so cheerful in doing it. When there is anything to be done, such as making or shortening sail, digging ice from flows for the water supply, or heaving up the sounding line, it goes without saying that all the afterguard turn out to do it. There is no hesitation and no distinction. It will be the same when it comes to landing stores or doing any other hard manual work. The spirit of the enterprise is as bright as ever, Everyone strives to help everyone else, and not a word of complaint or anger has been heard on board. The inner life of our small community is very pleasant to think upon, and very wonderful, considering the extremely small space in which we are confined. The attitude of the men is equally worthy of admiration. In the forecastle, as in the wardroom, there is a rush to be first when work is to be done, and the same desire to sacrifice selfish consideration to the success of the expedition. It is very good to be able to write in such high praise of one's companions, and I feel that the possession of such support ought to ensure success. Fortune would be in a hard mood indeed if it allowed such a combination of knowledge, experience, ability and enthusiasm to achieve nothing. End of chapter 2, part 3